This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Texas is poised to join Georgia as a Republican-controlled state enacting sweeping changes in voting laws that voting rights advocates say amount to blatant voter suppression. Here are Texas Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro and Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. The Republican Party in Texas is trying to bring back Jim Crow-style voter suppression to this state. When you suggest that we're trying to suppress the vote, you are, in essence, between the lines, calling us racist, and that will not stand. Republicans can thank the Supreme Court for its 2013 Shelby County decision that created a glide path for many of the election changes they're pushing through this year. Joining me is elections law expert Rick Hassan, a professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. There is a cascade of voting changes in Republican-controlled states. Which state's bill stands out as the most restrictive and why? I think it's a moving target. We're still waiting to see what legislation is going to pass in Texas. And Texas had some pretty worrisome provisions that came out of the bill on the Senate side, somewhat different provisions on the House side, and we'll see what emerges before the end of the session. But you saw in Florida, in Georgia, in Arizona, in each of these states, laws that make it somewhat harder for people to register and to vote. In addition, and what I think is probably more concerning than even things like saying you can't give voters water while they're waiting in line to vote, are provisions that might allow partisans to manipulate how the votes are actually going to be counted. So in Georgia, the Secretary of State, who you may remember, Brad Raffensperger, stood up to Trump and would not find or manufacture additional votes to try to flip the outcome. The Secretary of State position has been taken out of a role on the state election board to be replaced by someone who's going to be appointed by the legislature. And this body now has the power to take over up to four county election boards at a time. And so it could be that we'll see the state election board looking to take over Democratic counties and mess with how the election is being conducted in those counties. So this is a kind of a new problem that we haven't seen before, not just about making it harder to vote, but potentially subverting the outcome of the election itself. Could these bills backfire and restrict Republican voters as well? Oh, I think there's no doubt that this is a real danger. And in fact, in Florida, which has very successfully used mail-in balloting for many years, some Republican legislators are worried that this is going to make it harder for reliable Republican voters to cast a ballot, even to the point where they were thinking of exempting the rules for military and elderly voters who are more likely to vote for Republicans. They didn't end up going that route, but it does show that there is concern about backfire. And so one is that it's going to make it harder for reliable Republicans to turn out to vote. And we saw a turnout was way up, for example, in Texas, and that helped Republicans. So higher turnout doesn't necessarily help Democrats. But the other thing that these laws do is that they energize the Democratic base, the Democratic Party, seeing this as an effort at suppressing the vote. And that can actually spur a backlash, which can actually increase turnout. So it's not clear what the actual effect is going to be on election results, but I think that shouldn't be where the main focus is. The main focus should be, why does the state get to make it harder for people to register or to vote without having a good reason to do so? And and the reason here seems to be simply to try to give one party partisan advantage. As far as the parts of these bills that go further than talking about how a person votes in that state, will those survive court challenges? So how things are going to go in the court is uncertain. There are really three main lines of attack. 
One is an attack under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The second is an attack under various constitutional provisions, including the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And the third are attacks under state constitutions. So let me talk about each of those separately. How much does Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act protect the laws that make it harder for people to register and vote? That is an open question that is before the United States Supreme Court right now in a case called Brnovich. This is a case coming out of Arizona where the Democratic Party challenged some rules that they said made it harder for voters to be able to cast their ballots. And the Supreme Court is going to, for the first time, weigh in on how Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which provides that minority voters should have the same opportunity as others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice, how Section 2 is going to apply in this context. We know how it applies in the context of redistricting. The courts decided lots of cases on that question. But this major issue in the Brnovich case, that should be decided by the end of June, and that will tell us how well these new challenges will go under Section 2. In terms of constitutional challenges under the Equal Protection Clause and other provisions of the U.S. Constitution, I think plaintiffs face an uphill battle because over the years, the Supreme Court and lower courts have not been as accepting of these kinds of claims of constitutional violations. I think the really egregious laws could fall under U.S. constitutional challenges, but it's going to be a tough road to challenge the laws there. And it really shows you what the loss of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which the Supreme Court eviscerated in the 2013 Shelby County versus Holder case, really did. And then finally, challenges in state courts raising state constitutional claims. These could potentially be successful, especially in states like Pennsylvania and North Carolina, which have Democratic majority state Supreme Courts, which have been shown to be skeptical of some efforts to manipulate election results through restrictive voting laws. But there's a pending question about whether or not state courts have the power to rein in state legislatures when it comes to the rules for federal elections. That's an issue the Supreme Court ducked in the 2020 election season, but it will probably end up back at the court. So Texas and Georgia were states that were subject to the 1965 Voting Rights Act's requirement that jurisdictions get preclearance from the Justice Department or a federal court before changing their voting rules. You referenced the Supreme Court's decision in the Shelby County case. Just tell us briefly what that case did. So as you mentioned, there were a number of states that had a history of racial discrimination in voting that had to get federal approval before making changes to their voting rules, and they had to demonstrate that the changes would not make protected minority voters worse off. In 1966, the Supreme Court upheld this preclearance provision as what the court called strong medicine. It's tough to tell a state that they've got to get federal approval before they can put their laws in place, but the court said it was justified by this long history of discrimination. By 2013, however, the Supreme Court said that the law was no longer justified because it was based upon data about disparities in turnout and voting from the 1960s and from 1970. And so the court didn't strike down the preclearance provision itself, but instead struck down the coverage formula, the formula that dictated which states were going to be subject to these rules. And what's happened since then is that Congress has been considering different coverage formulas. And right now, there's a bill pending in the House. It's called H.R. 4. It's the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And it would impose a new requirement of preclearance under a new formula with the hope that this would pass constitutional muster if it were put in place. 
And Joe Manchin, who is a senator from West Virginia, is a Democrat who's very important because he's kind of a 50th vote to try to get a voting bill through the Senate. And he has said that he would favor moving preclearance to a nationwide standard. That is, rather than single out particular states, you would have every state be subject to these kinds of rules. I think that would solve one of the issues raised in Shelby County, which is treating some states differently than others. But it does still raise the question of whether or not Congress would have the power to make states go through this kind of process. So a lot up in the air. It's not clear if legislation will pass that would try to reverse Shelby County. And it's not clear that if that legislation passed, that the Supreme Court would be willing to uphold it. How does the fact that the court is more conservative now, six conservative members, and in fact, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion in Shelby County, how does that play in? We do know that this court is full of conservative justices who are skeptical of race-based solutions generally. So it's not clear if a renewed Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act would pass constitutional muster for this conservative court. But listening to the oral arguments of the Brnovich case, that Section 2 case, it did sound like a number of the conservative justices were willing to read the Voting Rights Act as providing some protection for minority voters. There wasn't really any suggestion that this was somehow unconstitutional or needed to be reined in. So we'll see. That opinion won't be out for probably another month and a half, but it's probably the most important voting rights decision that we're going to get in a number of years. And it is going to be a major indication of how conservative this court is and whether the six conservative justices on the court really march in lockstep or whether there is some daylight between them on questions of voting rights. Chief Justice John Roberts also, I believe, wrote the majority opinion in the Supreme Court's 2019 decision that judges can't toss voting maps for being too partisan. How important was that decision? So this is the Rucho decision, and that's a very important decision as we're entering into the new period of redistricting. So redistricting happens every 10 years after the census. For the 2022 elections, we'll have new lines being drawn. We just had a new apportionment where I live in California. We just lost one seat. Some other states have gained a seat or two. And after the lines are drawn, there are often challenges that the lines are unconstitutional, that they violate various provisions of state law or violate the Voting Rights Act. One argument that had been floating out there for some time is that when you draw these district lines, you do so to favor one party and hurt the other party, so-called partisan gerrymandering, that this violates the Constitution. And the issue had been uncertain for many years because Justice Kennedy, who was the key swing vote on this question, kept it open and still wanted to hear different kinds of challenges to figure out you know, when redistricting goes too far as to violate the Constitution. However, after Justice Kennedy left the court, the Supreme Court in the Rucho case said that federal courts are not open to hearing claims of partisan gerrymandering. So we'll be going into the new round of redistricting with two major legal changes since the last round. Number one, is no partisan gerrymandering claims will be viable. So that's not something that those who want to engage in partisan gerrymandering need to worry about. And number two, it will be the first redistricting round since the 1970s in which the Justice Department will not be pre-clearing maps that were drawn in those jurisdictions that had a history of racial discrimination in voting. So going to be a lot of political battles, not clear how much the courts are going to get involved. Maybe state courts will get involved more, but it's a very different atmosphere than it was in the last decade when these cases emerged after the last round of redistricting. Has there been a time in our history since the Jim Crow era where so many states were moving to restrict voting rights? 
Well, I think that as soon as the Supreme Court decided the Shelby County case, you saw immediate action by North Carolina and Texas to try to impose or uh, apply strict voting rules. Uh, It's uh, really accelerated now uh, following the 2020 election after Donald Trump's repeated false claims that the election was stolen. In part, as a reaction to that, a number of states have passed restrictive voting rules. Uh, They're doing so in an atmosphere where the courts are less protective of voting rights. And so I do think that voting rights are under assault now in a way that they haven't been in a number of decades. Thanks, Rick. That's Rick Hassan of the University of California, Irvine School of Law. It didn't take long for the jury in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin to reach a verdict, according to juror Brandon Mitchell. We probably deliberated for four hours, and of that four hours, it was, it was um, I guess we were going over more so the terminology um, that was being used to make sure that we understood exactly what was being asked. And now another jury, a federal jury, will be asked to decide what happened that day in May when Chauvin pinned George Floyd down to the ground with a knee on his neck. The Justice Department has indicted Chauvin and the three other former officers on federal civil rights charges for willfully violating Floyd's constitutional rights. Joining me is Jonathan Smith, executive director of the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. Derek Chauvin was convicted of murder. The three other former officers haven't even been tried yet. Aren't federal charges usually brought after state charges fail, like in the Rodney King case? So it is unusual for the federal government to bring civil rights violations charges while the state case is still pending. The federal charge is a much broader criminal statute that addresses when someone who's acting on color of state law, a state official, willfully violates someone's civil rights. It dates back to the Civil War, literally the Reconstruction era, and it's the only statute that the United States can use to charge in these cases. Typically, the United States will come in and bring those charges only under the circumstances in which there's been some decision by the United States that the state criminal proceeding was inadequate to serve justice. And that's in the United States Attorney's Manual, which is the directions to the United States Attorney from the Attorney General about when they should charge. And so the fact that they brought charges here before the state proceedings had concluded is unusual and does reflect the seriousness which the United States is taking this particular case. What does the prosecution have to prove here? Is it a high burden? So the federal crime for which these officers have been charged requires that the United States show that these officers willfully violated George Floyd's civil rights. And the willfulness standard is the highest standard in our criminal law. It's the same standard as you would apply for intentional murder or another intent crime. It doesn't mean that they still have to show that they intend to kill George Floyd, but they do have to show that they intended to commit the acts that they knew to be in violation of his civil rights, that they intended to restrain him illegally, that they intended to restrain him in violation of Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution and the rules around use of force. And that is a very difficult standard to make. It's much different than the kinds of crimes that were charged in the state case. I mean, the state did charge a crime which required the showing of intent, but it also charged a crime with a much lower intent standard of recklessness or negligence. And there is no crime available under the United States Code that is at a recklessness or a negligence standard. The only crime that's available in the United States Code is to show this intent to commit a civil rights violation. And so it's a very difficult case to prove. The United States must feel very confident it can prove the case because they charge so rarely and only under circumstances 
where the evidence is extremely clear. You know, clearly the United States had begun its investigation well before the trial of Derek Chauvin. The grand jury had been sitting for some time. The FBI had been engaged in its investigation. You know, we'll certainly wait and see whether there was any new evidence developed by the United States that wasn't presented by the state. Well, let me ask your opinion. Do you think that it's fair to try a person for the same crime in two different jurisdictions just to pile on years to the prison term? I mean, is it fair? Our Constitution says that you cannot be exposed to double jeopardy. And that really means that you can't be charged and tried for the same conduct twice, that the state gets one shot at you. The Supreme Court has said that the United States and the state are different sovereigns and that the double jeopardy provision only applies to each of the sovereigns independently and has permitted the United States to bring charges for course of conduct that may have been resolved in a state court proceeding. That can create an injustice. That can create an injustice by you know, punishing somebody twice and severely for the same conduct. And so in order to address that, that is why typically the United States, before it will bring charges, will take into account the question of whether the state proceeding provided adequate justice for the conduct. And that is why the United States having charged before Derek Chauvin has even been sentenced and the other officers have ever been tried is so unusual because the United States would typically allow the state to go forward with its case first and then evaluate whether the state court proceeding provided adequate justice before it will bring those charges. And so this is unusual for the United States to have moved in before it can even answer that question really is sending a signal that the United States is going to be more engaged around these cases and that it's going to use the statutes in a more robust way than prior administrations may have. What can the officers argue in their defense? So there are three elements to the statute that the United States has to prove. The first is that the officers are acting under color of law, which means they're acting in an official capacity with the authority of the state. Um, there's going to be a very little contest that they were acting as police officers at the time. Um, they'll, uh, the United States has to prove that it was a violation of um, Mr. Floyd's civil rights. And I think that um, restraining somebody to the point in which they died is going to be very difficult for the officers to argue that um, Mr. Jones' civil rights were not, Mr. Floyd's civil rights were not violated. And um, But the third element is the one of intent, that they set out to commit an act knowing that it was a violation of uh, George Floyd's civil rights. That's where I think that if there's a trial in this case, that's where I think the trial is going to focus. What was in the minds of the officers at the time that they committed these acts? Did they intend to commit an act that they knew to be um, in violation of the United States Constitution? So how will prosecutors prove intent if the officers don't take the stand? Well, you saw a lot of that evidence come out in the trial. Um, you, you can show intent through all kinds of circumstantial evidence. What, what was the officer's training? What did they know about the policy? What was their prior behavior and conduct that would indicate that they knew that their conduct was violating the civil rights? You know, was there use of force proportionate to the crime or the resistance that they were receiving from Mr. Floyd at the time. There's a lot you can bring in that allow you to understand what the officers, you know, were thinking at the time. You saw this, you know, looking at the incident, you know, the severity of the crime for which Mr. Floyd was suspected of having committed, 
the um, nature of the use of force, the persistence of the use of force in the face of what was being said to them by people in the crowd of, you know, his physical condition as it deteriorated. All of that can be brought in to show that the officers knew that what they were doing um, may well have been a violation of his rights under the Constitution. You know, police officers are trained to know are supposed to be trained in what the law is around when they can and can't use force. And they're supposed to be trained to know that that force has to be reasonable and that it can't be used, you know, in this kind of excessive, dangerous ways. And bringing in some of the same evidence that the state brought in um, will be very important to proving their intent. The Justice Department is also starting again with pattern and practice investigations, announcing civil investigations into the Minneapolis and Louisville police departments. Are they necessary? I think they're necessary and they're important. When I was at the Department of Justice, I led the section that did the pattern and practice investigations for the Civil Rights Division of Law Enforcement during the Obama administration. The statute that they're enforcing, which allows the Attorney General to address patterns and practices of the violation of the Constitution and federal law by law enforcement, was enacted in the wake of the rebellions in Los Angeles after the beating of Rodney King as a way to give the federal government some ability to influence and to address unconstitutional practices by local law enforcement agencies. That statute has been enforced about 75 times since 1994 when it was enacted. About 25 of those cases were brought during the Obama administration. There was only one such investigation and case that was brought during the Trump administration. What we're seeing with the announcements in Louisville and in Minneapolis is that the Department of Justice is going to be bringing more of those cases. I think that is a bellwether, an indicator that the United States is going to be back pursuing these cases regarding patterns of violations of the Constitution by law enforcement across the nation. One thing about those cases that is really very different than the criminal cases is they're not about trying to hold people accountable. That's not the goal. The criminal statute is designed, if somebody engaged in misconduct, to punish them and hold them accountable for misconduct. The pattern of practice investigations are designed to try to identify whether or not there is a course of conduct by that law enforcement agency that is routinely depriving people of their civil rights, and then to come up with a forward-looking remedy. How can you fix that problem through policy, training, supervision, accountability, changes in practices that may limit the circumstances in which force is used or encounters between police and persons with mental illness or traffic stops that are racially motivated or whatever it might be. So it's really a very forward-looking exercise. It's not to punish the city or the police department. It's not to find fault. It's really to say, if there's a problem here, how do we fix it? What can we do going forward that would be different that will provide communities with police departments that deliver police services in a constitutional way? And has it worked in the past? There's been a tremendous success with the pattern and practice investigations. Now, it's important to note that the jurisdiction of the Attorney General and of the Civil Rights Division is actually quite limited in this area. It is to make police departments constitutional. That is a really, really, really important thing. But it is not everything that communities want. You can have a constitutional police department that doesn't reflect or meet the values of a community and doesn't deliver police services in the way that the community desires or wishes or even deserves. But it is really important. If you look around the country at where these investigations have led to consent decrees and those consent decrees have been implemented, you've seen very significant transformation and change. Thanks, Thanks Jonathan. 
That's Jonathan Smith of the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.